Great. So um, thank you all for being here. Thank you for the energy in the room. I'm really excited for our panel tonight. Um, I'm just going to give you a little bit of context before we get to our blockbuster speakers um, for the evening. So um, I am so privileged to have worked on this report, Seeding Generations. <coughs> Um, I want to thank Hannah, who is not only a masterful editor, but one of the key members of the steering committee, Liberty Aldridge, who you heard also was, um, Carrie Moles from the Court Appointed Special Advocates Program, um, Manny Yanko, who has been at the Family Wellness Program, as well as ACS, and Catherine Chagruth Dos Santos, who is at the Anti-Violence Project. Um, all of these folks were part of the steering committee, and my various right hands in the way of Kali and many right hands. So I wouldn't have been able to do this report without them. So thank you to them. And then if you were interviewed for this report and want to express so, raise your hand. So thank you to the folks who were interviewed and part of the expert pool that were part of this report. This report was a community effort, um, and Trisha was an amazing support to me in terms of getting Institutional Review Board approval. Um, I interviewed um, 31 folks, um, 24 survivors of violence, as well as seven folks who identified as survivors of violence and folks who had caused harm. And so um, this research came out of work with people in the field, but also folks who have utilized services and folks who have experienced intimate partner violence in various ways. Um, so I really want to situate that context because I think it's really important in terms of thinking about seeding generations, which is also, this is what the report looks like. And I really want to thank um, the Center for Court Innovation and particularly Samiha um, Me, who was the graphic designer, who I was like, I want a tree and something interesting so it's not just a bland policy report and it's transformative. And so she turned all my ideas into amazing things. So. This report is on the Center for Court Innovation website, and you can download it all. Um, it is long, but it's beautiful, and it's full of like incredible voices. So it's not dry, it's not dull, it is not a legal brief. I mean, what did I know? It, it's great. So you will want to read it. Um, I want to start with um, the voice of a survivor, Ifat, who said to me, um, there is a list of numbers for the victim, I haven't seen any services for the abuser so they can get help. I would like to see that being offered. It's so painful to see this as the norm. I really want to center this work from a survivor-centered perspective, which is to say that many times survivors are seeking support for their partners um, for various reasons, whether because they want to stay in the relationship out of emotion, out of economic need, out of family need, out of cultural need and context. Y'all know the scene. Um, but for many reasons, um, being in that relationship is important and vital. And so we have not been able to fully serve survivors of violence by not being able to offer more transformative solutions. And so that was the genesis of my thinking around this work. Um, and I squarely come from um, a victim's advocate perspective um, in that I used to be the executive director at Secular for South Asian Women for about nine years, so survivor service was really our focus. And so I come at this work from that perspective and really centering survivors. So part of what Ifat was saying um, was really just in terms of that there aren't services for transformation available, but also that so much of the onus of the work um, in terms of surviving an intimate partner violence relationship is placed upon the survivor. 
you have to go to court, you have to get benefits, you have to do all this work. Um, and so to really kind of center that piece of it that we need to offer other alternatives and solutions. Um, I spoke to a white trans woman, um, Kimber, who identified as somebody who had experienced sexual violence and also perpetrated violence. And Kimber said, as important as it is to have a team dedicated to a survivor, it's just as important for that person who's perpetrating harm to have a team. They've been trying to do whatever it is they're doing, healing, harming, avoiding on their own for so long. It's going to take a lot of different people to get through to them. Someone who perpetrates harm does not expect support. So obviously when we talk about intimate <laughs> violence, it's difficult, it's deep, it's emotional, and involves many dynamics. And so when we think about working with folks who've caused harm, um, the larger context of structural violence, of racism, colonialism, all the isms come into play. And so we want to acknowledge that and also hold space for accountability. So our panelists are absolutely gonna speak to that and how we can do both. Um, and a little bit later on towards the end, I'll share a little bit of some of the resources um, that you can find on the website and in Seeding Generations but I especially wanted to start with the voices of survivors and to make sure that we had survivor voices in the room. And the folks um, who identify as folks who've caused harm and have begun a transformation process in their own journeys. So with that, um, I'm gonna pass it over. The format for this evening is each of our panelists is gonna speak for about eight to 10 minutes. And um, we definitely want to leave time for dialogue, for questions, because again, some of this work, there are experts in the audience, but also some of this work is new. Um, this work is urgent and necessary, and people come at it from different vantages, so we want to have time for that. Um, each panelist, you have bios, so I'm not going to go through all the bios, um, but I'm just going to say if folks want to offer one thing that compels them about this work as part of your introduction, I think that would be a great grounding. So I'm going to start with Q, who many of you know in the room, um, who has been a stalwart founder to this movement, particularly in terms of engaging men and boys, and also particularly was um, an instrumental person in terms of the founding of the coalition on um, folks working with abusive partners, on advocates working with abusive partners. Um, so I'm gonna pass it over to Q to ground us in terms of why we need these services. Okay, how's everyone? Good, 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 thank you, Pervy. I just wanna say thanks to the New York City Bar and everyone who's kinda of touched this event. I know there's been many people. Um, and again, my name is uh, Quentin Walcott. Everyone calls me Q, I'm the co-executive director of Connect. Um, and before I begin, I'm, I'm glad that we started with the, uh, the voice of a survivor, because I think that's why this work needs to be done, right? Because we're looking at, um, you know, this idea of, you know, engaging men and harm doers and responsible parties. There's so much language around it now, and we're trying to move away from the, um, the stigmatizing and the labeling uh, terms that we use, like perpetrator and offender and um, all of those things. But before we begin, I just want you all to kind of uh, imagine for a moment, imagine if there were no uh, offenders, no perpetrators, no responsible parties. Just imagine that for a moment. And imagine that in terms of your work. How would your work change? 
Mm. Would you even have a job anymore? Just think about that for a moment. Mm. Okay, if that's uh, too, too, too far to kind of stretch your brain, think about for a moment, what if there were services available mm. for those men, women, whoever is doing harm in relationships, if there were services available to them that really fit their needs, what would your work look like? Just think about that for a moment. Mm. Do we have jobs anymore? <laughs> Raise your hand if you thought you think you would not have a job anymore. <laughs> All right, so we wouldn't do intervention work anymore. We would do prevention work, right? Mm. So that is the key. That is the goal. Um, so the, the, you know why I do this work and why I have services for those who are doing harm? Because uh, we must. The whole idea of um, you know, working in communities and communities that have been harmed by other forms mm. of violence. Right, structural violence, systemic violence, um, gun and gang violence, all the different the continuum of violence that people experience every single day, I think is uh, part of the reason why this must be done. So and when we do this, it's not just um, you know, looking at primarily <coughs> men, because men are com committing most of the violence. When we think about domestic violence and intimate partner violence, it does happen in all types of relationships. Um, but to, to look at domestic violence and intimate partner violence in a different way, not just as, as an issue that, um, that women have to experience and deal with and kind of survive and, um, and really kind of you know, keep themselves safe, keep their children safe, and then hold the person who's doing harm to them accountable. We have to really look at this idea of um, you know, engaging those who are doing harm, primarily men and boys, from my experience and my, my target area, is to really look at keeping women and children safe and other men who are being harmed by these men, and then also to really transforming the ideas and belief systems that uh, manifest um, in, in their choices to be abusive, and then also looking at the systems that say it's okay to do so. So it's not just working on an individual, it's working on a community, it's working on systems that may not be addressing uh, the needs of people who are seeking their services and help, right? So I'm always critical of systems, understand their point. We just have an analysis that um, when we look at folks who are doing harm and how they should be held accountable is the question, right? We, we are socialized to look at accountability in a certain way. As children, we were told uh, you do something wrong, there's a consequence to that action. So we must start looking at um, systems with a critical eye and not to kind of bash them or to kind of um, um, really look at that and try and say they're not effective because they are effective to some, right? And we go back to the survivor. We have to always have to go back to the survivor and figure out what is it that they need uh, to feel safe and they should be a part of what should happen in somebody's accountability process. I think in the a, in a, in a truest sense, that would be the most ideal way. And for many survivors that I've worked with through my work at Connect in communities all over New York City, some survivors want to rely on systems because that's what they think is, is necessary. 
some survivors are more critical of these systems, right? Because they experience harm from them, and the people that are doing them harm are feeling, are experiencing harm from them as well. And they don't want to live, hold that, the idea of the person that's doing them harm is harmed by the system. Because there's a lot of responsibility connected to that. Not just on the individual, but the faith community, and then uh, just bringing um, a certain light or attention uh, that you have to kind of hold. So there's a tug between um, what true accountability is and what role survivors play in that accountability. So I think that's important to really kind of look at uh, the relationships, the inter intimate partner relationship or the intimate relationship, and then the, the relationship between uh, the survivor and even the person who's doing harm in the system. How can we truly give people effective help? So that's uh, uh, something that we have to really kind of look at. And to look at what does is, what is safety mean? Safety is very different for individuals. Safety is very different for communities. So we have to kind of look at that and unpack that. What, what does it take to make someone feel safe and secure? And then the other piece around accountability, how I'm defining accountability is one, recognizing the harm that you have done, right? And in dealing with the consequences, despite what they may be, until we can kind of figure out uh, a path to um, accountability that is acceptable for the person who's been harmed, right? That plays a, a close role in that. And then also that uh, the person who's done harm is, is done in a way that there's no excuses involved, that they participate in whatever that path to accountability is so that one, they can transform their attitudes and belief systems and their behaviors, right? And that could either be through um, a batterers program, it could be through uh, looking at restorative justice or transformative justice. And I know that's still controversial in terms of does that keep someone safe in a relationship? But of course, we would design it and implement it in a way that's, uh, that's guided by a survivor, right? And, that, and, the, and the person who's done the harm participates in that process. So it may be some form of reparations, it may be some form of repair, it may be some form of getting the help that they need, because many of the the women that we've worked with, particularly women of color, are really most interested in uh, getting this person help, sacrificing their own safety in a lot of those cases. So because this person, when we look at why um, survivors stay in situations, right? The goal is for them to be safe, of course, but there's many reasons why, or many obstacles to leaving an abusive relationship. And because of those obstacles are in play, it's important for them to really think about the person who's done harm to them and how they can participate because one, they may have children together. There may be some form of alliance. The f some form of the abuse may not be a physical or sexual form of it. It may be a, a psychological, it may be um, a financial need uh, to, be, to have the person who's done them harm to be held accountable, to kind of keep them in, in play without throwing them away uh, for whatever individual uh, excuses there are may be. And again, there's not one type of survivor. Some survivors need different means and methods and, and, and around their safety. There's not one particular type of uh, abusive partner. It takes shapes in many different forms. It's not just about the physical or psychological. Because that, that is important because when you go into family court trying to get past the clerk, the clerk, the clerk, and there's no black eye, um, it's hard to kind of get the services that you need. So we have to really expand the way we kind of view 
uh, intimate partner violence is not just this physical or sexual piece. It's really more about emotional, psychological, and all of those things. So all of that is important around thinking about what safety is, what accountability looks like outside of the traditional ways that we've been socialized. And it's also important when we think about uh, what, what should happen and how that should happen. So many of us know about batters programs, there's other forms of groups um, that are really taking this on because most of the violence is not uh, being reported in communities for various reasons, because someone may be undocumented, there's fears around that, there may be poor relationships with police traditionally in that community, many various reasons why um, harm that's being done is not being reported. So with that, we must meet people where they are. That's in their communities. We must talk to survivors. We must look at how we are raising children. And that's, of course, with the, uh, you know, we are socialized. I'm, so, I'm socialized to be a, a man, a particular type of man, based on my male body parts, right? So I was on this trajectory. Uh, the, the women and young women in my lives on a different trajectory, right? And that's part of this gender binary that is incomplete, does not cover um, all types of traits and uh, responsibilities that we should take on as human beings. So that is incomplete in itself. So we must also include um, in our attempts to look at prevention and also intervention ways that, that are appropriate for gender non-performing folks, because that's important. Because domestic violence, intimate partner violence, does not discriminate in terms of who does it and who's being harmed by it. So we must really include that in our conversations and looking at different types of relationships where harm is being done. So we must have services available for everyone who's being impacted. And um, you know, and, and there's no batteries program and studies have been done. Some may prove that they are ineffective, but one thing that's consistent with them is that survivors want something to happen, right? Mm -hmm. So it's our duty to really kind of look at what's being taught what type of programs are available, the information, what type of dialogue is happening, and create spaces where that can happen, either through a traditional violence program or more of a community mm. type of models that are taking shape now in the city. Um, and that have been going on actually for some time, but the fact that the city is taking this on, has listened to the cries of survivors, has mm -hmm. listened to the, cry, the cries of grassroots organizations on the ground, that see that there's a, a need and a necessity for different approaches. So we need a menu of options available to survivors and to those who are doing harm to get the help that they need. And I just want to really um, salute uh, the co-op. You know, co-op, the, the founders, we've been around for quite some time in different forms and different shapes and different conversations, but has really been in a place to really inform, I think, what is happening now in New York City from the systemic side and supporting resources, not just financial resources, but really transforming the thinking around what should happen with abusive partners um, for their work and they continue to, to do that. Um, so I think that's very important. And then, you know, just in terms of connect really quickly and I'll be done. Um, it's like, you know, the work we're doing is really pushing men who, are, who do harm or who are bystanders and moving them from bystanders, harm doers, so to speak, to 
um, allies with women and girls, and also activists on their own. So we have several initiatives and spaces, such as our Men's Roundtable. We've been going on for 12 years, right? Last Thursday, every single month. And we are really um, putting these conversations to the, on, the, on the table, dissecting them, getting deep with different themes around masculinity, of course. And masculinity not just as a, a thing that has to do with men and manhood, but as an attitude that anyone can take on. It can be very toxic, hyper, unhealthy um, uh, ways of uh, looking at uh, decision-making in relationships. So it's important to do that, to really kind of look at um, initiatives where men and fathers and those who identify as men and who are father figures um, to really kind of take shape. And we'll be in our 10th year of the Father's Day Pledge Against Violence coming up in June. I encourage you all to attend, invite people, men, fathers, mothers, uncles, mentors, to be involved in that process. And that is a movement that has taken shape all throughout the country. It's now in 55 cities. And it's really started something that happened here in New York City, a collaboration with Connect, community-based organizations, many in this room, and a city council who's really taking this really uh, seriously around really moving men from bystanders to allies and activists to end violence in relationships and violence against women and girls and also uh, violence in, in, in communities around a continual violence from gun and gang violence to other forms of community violence. Thank you. Thank you, Q. And one of the things that I want to also underscore is um, I think one of the innovations in Connect's work is that you don't have to identify as a perpetrator of harm to participate in the programming. So it's both intervention and prevention at the same time and reaches a wider scope of people than folks who may feel like they're being labeled in a certain way. Um, so I want to underscore that piece in terms of um, some of the innovation and strategy in that work. Um, and you set a context in terms of um, racial bias and other kinds of bias and inequity within our criminal legal systems. And so we wanted to also speak to programs within criminal legal systems that are offering either whole person or trauma-informed or multi-service approaches or a different way to engage um, while having accountability. So Anna is going to speak to you about the PACT program from the Department of Probation in that vein. I have a surprise for you. I'm not going to talk about that too much. Oh, no! <laughs> I, will, I, will I love surprises. No, Go no, for no, it. No, uh, because once you said reimagine yeah. domestic, then you don't know what that does to me. But <laughs> I go, like, really wide and, and out. So um, so let me just, I will talk about it just a little bit. Uh, let me talk about probation uh, a minute. Uh, so probation, just to give you a context, um, you know, we we supervise um, people who've been uh, through the criminal justice system, of course, um, about 27,000 people in the course of a year, give or take, and about 5% of those cases are explicitly DV cases, right? So it's a small percentage. However, then we've got, you know, um, as we've been reimagining probation, and um, we have been doing a lot of changes in the way we interact with um, people who are on probation, uh, there is a, you know, I say often, if you've heard me speak before, that it should, I want it to be called the Department of Humanity, because mm. we have to re, 
reinsert humanity in our criminal justice system. And so, um, so as we're doing all of that and engaging with our clients in a much more meaningful way, guess what we're discovering? Of course, there's a lot of people involved in intimate partner violence, whether as a survivor or as a perpetrator, as a uh, the person causing the, the uh, the violence. Then on top of that, we've got, um, we get feeds from the NYPD every day about DIRs, mm. and then we have our, you know, quote unquote, run of the mill rearrests, and we know that uh, about 50% of the rearrests that occur uh, during probation that are assaults are DV related. So that's one, one piece of the scene. Then we've got NYPD's numbers, right, that um, homicides have gone down quite a bit. Mm. But we've, we have a plateau, mm. and that plateau is the domestic violence-related um, homicides. The frustrating part of this, in a, not frustrating, uh, the, the it's, it's difficult to, to grapple with, is that the majority of those, I don't know what the actual number is, but or percentage, but the majority of those um, are people who have not mm. been known to a lot of our systems, right? So in terms of if I wanted to take ownership of that, I couldn't because they, they're not with me. They're not people who are on probation. They're not people who we've touched, right? Mm. Um, and so we have to figure out certainly on, on that piece of the work, maybe a different construct, maybe, I, I don't know, right? So I'm here also to tell you that I have no idea where we're gonna land on this. Part of my goal in the, let's assume three years that I have left um, at probation, is to, to really create and leave a blueprint for how we're gonna manage um, all these nuances within you know, uh, intimate partner violence. Um, and that's not even touching intrafamilial violence, right, that we see a lot of, uh, especially among our young people. Mm. Um, so, so what we've done so far, as Pervy said, um, we have two programs um, that we run. We have one in the Bronx, which is packed, um, and one in Queens that we're running as a pilot um, uh, with, the, with the Domestic Violence Task Force and 20,000 other people. Um, so, so what we've done is, so what happens in, in the Bronx is that um, people who come on to probation with a domestic violence case, um, what I will call the explicit cases, go through a process of 18 months where they're uh, having groups um, uh, with that are co-facilitated by specially trained probation officers. And also we have uh, some work, it used to be that PACT was uh, jointly run with Safe Horizons and we had a great staff person who would also work with survivors. And we've lost that part of the work, and that's not good. Mm. You know, like so. So mm. PACT is good, in, and it's and a lot of people have done observations, and there's a lot of strengths there. But it's, in my opinion, incomplete. Um, and it's also incomplete because it's 18 months with this intensive work and this group, and then the people get transferred to another probation officer mm. for the rest of the time of probation because people are on probation for five years, three years, whatever. So, um, so we have a lot of thinking to do around that. Um, and then in Queens right now, it's, it's in its toddler uh, phase, I think. Um, we, the, the reason we went into Queens was because we looked at some data and in 2016, for example, of the 
I want to say uh, 6,000 cases or so that had gone through the, the IPV part, 14 got probation. Mm -hmm. 2,000 some got a CD, no services, no, you know, very little, uh, you know, intervention. And then the other 2,000, 3,000 got jail time. And out of that, of course, they served with time served and all that, 30 days, 50 and we have a perfect system, almost perfect system that, and as Q was talking, I was like, wait a minute, I belong to a system that it's a major perpetrator of violence, okay? Both on the survivors and on the, the people arrested and, and, and uh, coming to probation, because we have a really good system that begets and creates violence, right? So how do we even get out of that range, right? and reimagine what we should be doing. And so, um, so the Queen's Project is an interim probation so that, you know, hopefully, and we're negotiating a bunch of substantive details because um, not every case needs to, fin you know, be sentenced to probation after they're on interim probation. And so we're trying to figure out um, different things that, that also don't forever stigmatize and label and, uh, and further harm the, let's say, job prospects of uh, the, the, the participants in this program because we, we also have to understand the implications for people who get convicted of, of the crimes for their future and families, et cetera, et cetera, right? We also have not um, yet, uh, and I, this is why I'm, I'm talking about reimagining the whole thing, right? It starts with our pre-sentence investigations. How are we handling those cases differently? domestic violence cases differently. How can we ensure that there's a statement there of the impact, family impact or relationship impact? How are, th how are ways that then that can influence the way we supervise somebody, right? And so there's all these ways, and you've now joined the ranks of the people who are gonna need to advise me, um, and I <laughs> expect feedback from all of you as to what you think the role of probation should be. Uh, I recently, uh, spoke with some people who were also encouraging me, encouraging me to um, stay in your lane in a good way. <laughs> it's like, look at, so it would be great if we could do a bunch of stuff, right? And PACT is great, but is that the role we should be playing, mm. right? What are models we can learn from and, and uh, grab uh, enough of the, the, the things that work to make sure that we have this accountability, accountability that we can work with, um, survivors in a way that, of course, pr uh, promotes safety and at the same time promotes uh, our ability to hold people accountable and be able to ideally turn that relationship into something nonviolent and positive. But there's people who are also saying you can't, you can't guarantee the safety of people because behavior change takes long. It's mm. intergenerational. It's, mm. you know, and so, so there's all sorts of things are in my head. Mm -hmm. I will come to some, you know, plan, uh, which I would love to share with, with folks at some point. Um, but we really need to think deep and really think about what is realistic to do in my world, in the, in the government world. Um, and by no means uh, do I think it, it should be unduly limited. I think we should think big and at the same time be, like I said, realistic about uh, what we can hold ourselves accountable for. So, um, 
So I might just leave it at that, uh, if that's okay. And then, um, and hopefully in the conversation that we're gonna have later, uh, I can go into more detail if people want, but also I would really like to hear from you as to what you think the role of probation <coughs> should be in this space. Thank you, Anna. Um, applause, welcome. Um, so I observed, uh, in addition to talking with folks on the ground and survivors and folks who had caused harm, um, I also did six site visits of um, programs working with folks who have caused harm, including the PAC program. And um, I think one of the things that uh, is very difficult about many of the current programs is all that they're marking is attendance and not transformation. And um, there's a big difference in those things. And so what was really great about PACT when I went to go see it, and I, I wasn't necessarily like, I'm going to like this program because I'm not that type of person. But when I went, I was really impressed by the conversation around um, male fragility and misogyny and other aspects that I didn't expect with recognizing wholeness of how does that actually hurt your day-to-day -day family relationship? Um, and so I think there were larger conversations that were being had um, and also that folks were invested in these conversations and building relationship with each other um, in that cohort, which I think um, when we talk about dreaming and reimagining, sometimes it's actually the first opportunity folks get to understand what a healthy relationship could look like. Um, and I, I'm so glad you mentioned intergenerational because, again, part of this work is disrupting cycles mm -hmm. of violence, mm -hmm. um, both structurally and then also familially. You just yeah. thought of something that I forgot to say. Because that is, to, as, as we've been um, reforming probation, if you will, we, we are very focused on the importance of behavior change and being able to generate that as part of the work that we do. Um, so part of the question for us is, is that realistic? In, for domestic violence in this kind of work. And I think we can probably go pretty far, but, but maybe, but we have to, to, to think about those outcomes, right? What is then gonna be considered quote unquote success or something that is, um, that is, uh, that is working? What does that mean? And that's, that's part of the difficulty and, and the challenge and the good challenge that we have. So. I love it, thank you. I'm going to pass it over now to Tanya um, to also continue this thread of new ways of envisioning success within a criminal legal response. Good evening, everyone. Uh, Good evening. Uh, my name is Tanya Aparicio. I am one of the deputy chiefs at the Manhattan DA's office. And you're probably asking why is a prosecutor part of this table as well. But as part of my job, I meet with, on a daily basis, um, multiple victims every single day in a domestic violence context. And I'm gonna go from survivor to victim because in the criminal justice system, there are victims <coughs> of crime, but no disrespect, they're all survivors as well. Um, and you know, a lot of times our survivors talk about how their partner has their own trauma that they grew up in, right? So the trauma that they either witnessed as a child or was a victim themselves as a child. And a lot of the survivors that I meet with and were working with cases of cases that we're prosecuting do have some distrust and some bad experiences with the criminal justice system 
but also love their partner and doesn't want their partner necessarily engaged um, in the criminal justice system and just want their partner to have get some help. And a lot of times I hear that all the time and about what resources are out there for them because many of our um, survivors that come in want to re-engage and want to keep their families together. Whether they have children in common or not, they want to re-engage with that partner and go on with them. Um, and sometimes the criminal justice process is a, is a barrier to that as well. So I'm lucky mm. to work in an office that has my chief of uh, the Special Victims Bureau, Audrey Moore, mm. and our district attorney, um, Cy Vance, who are quite transformative individuals themselves and really sort of look to outside the box of how can we engage in priority one, keeping our survivors and our victims and our cases safe, but also respect and make sure that we're engaging in a lot of their wishes as well. And how can we incorporate services for their abusive partners as well? Um, we have lots of services and things that we do for victims, but we're not going to change the dynamics and we're not gonna change the amount of arrests and violence that occurs if we're not engaging the abusive partners as well. So what we did as an office, I'm lucky we, where we're located, we have an opportunity to get a lot of asset forfeiture money. And about over a year ago, almost two years ago, we did an RFP for individuals to apply for creating a new trauma-informed approach working with abusive partners. And that um, RFP was awarded just last year to the Urban Resource Institute from our Criminal Justice Investment Initiative. And they're going to be creating, and they already have one in Westchester, but they're remodeling it and working a little bit so that fits within the structure of the um, Manhattan area. And we're gonna have a trauma-informed approach. This is a 26-week approach where we work with abusive partners and making sure that we're working and identifying their underlying trauma and making sure that they have the therapy and services they need to work with that, in addition to having a 26-week program with different individuals on a rolling basis as well. The program's gonna be free. The program's gonna be able to um, be for those who are Spanish-speaking as well. The program is also gonna try and incorporate in making sure that we are having referrals and access to job readiness programs, educational programs, and we're making those referrals as well, along with that therapy that goes along with a part of it. And that therapy could be individual, and that's something that that abusive partner can engage in, in addition to the 26-week program that we um, created as part of this group session. And it, there's also gonna be an assessment of that individual's needs, right? So making sure that we are combating what those additional needs are, are there for. So we're working with the abusive partner, but we're also giving something and engaging and making sure that we are really listening to our victims and survivors and what they want as well. These are gonna, this program is gonna be hopefully rolled out in early spring. We're just, we just got a location. It's gonna be housed out in Harlem, where the location all the sessions are going to be. Um, we're just finalizing the last bits of protocol, but hopefully we'll be able to do this. And this will be part of a criminal court case. So it'll be part of a plea or part of a disposition um, as well. So you'll have to be engaged in the criminal justice process to, to have an, an opportunity to, to receive this program. Um, the other thing that I, um, I wanted to talk about as well is I had the opportunity through the Manhattan Family Justice Center um, and the Office of Combat TV to have the opportunity to speak to survivors. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important as a prosecutor 
And I wanted to, ha I had the opportunity to do it with my chief, Audrey Moore, and it was important for me. It wasn't just survivors who went through the Manhattan uh, criminal court, but they went through family court and criminal court throughout the five boroughs. And I think as a prosecutor, it's important for me to know what their experience was through that process um, and what things we should be looking for uh, to change our engagement with those survivors. But one of the things that was profound for me, we've, we've been talking internally in my office about how, and with others out in the community, of how we can incorporate restorative justice as a part of dispositions with our cases in the criminal justice system. And it was profound to hear that we had probably about five or six survivors in the room, how engaged and how um, uh, interested they were in, in in being involved in the restor restorative justice process. So I think we have to sort of change sort of our mind frame as prosecutors and also sort of think of how can we incorporate that and engage that as a part of our criminal justice process. Because I think from a therapeutic perspective and from a closure perspective, uh, it was very profound to me to hear how important that aspect would be uh, for our survivors. In addition to the batteries program, so they were very interested in being engaged in a piece of that. So I'm gonna stop talking so you guys can ask questions um, uh, later on as well. The only thing I just wanted to add is as a part of this abusive partner intervention program, we're also going to have a piece uh, for an evaluation at the end, because mm -hmm. the most important thing is we want to do this, we want to be innovative, this is new, this is different. We hope that it's a success, but we also want to make sure that we know what mm -hmm. didn't work as well, what mm -hmm. we can change for the future, so that's important as well. Thank you, Thank you We'll be talking, Tanya. We'll be talking. Yes. We'll be talking. Awesome. Thank you, Tanya. Um, so one of the, the elements you mentioned, which was so crucial, is um, barriers to re-engaging with family and so I know that um, that's one of the pieces in terms of again when you get a criminal legal system involvement how do you also think about relationship right if there's an order of protection if there are other kinds of involvement what happens in a relationship so Juliana is going to be able to speak to us more in terms of the impact on families um, of systems involvement Hi everybody. So I work for Brooklyn Defender Services Family Defense Practice, uh, and we represent parents in uh, child abuse and neglect cases. Uh, in the last year, uh, BDS Family Defense Practice, uh, we've represented about 4,000 clients. And of those cases, approximately 30% involve allegations of domestic violence. We typically represent the person who allegedly abuses, uh, and which in our cases is usually the fathers. Uh, we also represent many of the survivors of the domestic violence. Over 90% of our clients are black and or Latino, and almost all of our clients are low income and or living in poverty. Uh, these are the parents that are being impacted by the Administration for Children's Services policies around intimate partner violence. These are policies which are breaking families apart and subjecting them to prolonged separation. In almost all of our domestic violence cases, ACS requests an exclusion order against our client, and the court frequently grants these requests at the initial court appearance. This separates the family until a hearing is held, which may take weeks to complete, and that's assuming that we win. There's no guarantee that we win those hearings. 
This leads to the fracturing and separation of families, which may, may cause more harm than good uh, to all of the parties involved, including the children, including the target of the alleged domestic violence, and the alleged perpetrator of the domestic violence. So the exclusion orders are frequently granted in cases that allege only a single incident of domestic violence. Before these exclusion orders are issued, there's little to no <coughs> assessment made by ATS regarding the family's positive history and their positive functioning. Furthermore, single incident cases are treated the same as cases involving extensive power and control issues, mm -hmm. often when the incident is caused by stressors such as financial problems. Exclusion orders pose major problems for families on several fronts. Uh, they force our clients out of their homes. Frequently, our clients financially support their families, which includes paying the rent. So a lot of clients are forced to continue paying the rent on the residence that they're excluded from, uh, and then have to pay rent at a second residence for themselves. Or more often, in a lot of our cases, they simply can't afford to pay rent at a second residence, and they become homeless. This puts a huge financial strain on the family, and sometimes results in the whole family being evicted from their home. ACS frequently asks for exclusion orders when the other parent may not want the order. So in our cases, that takes away uh, a lot of the self-determination from mothers in these cases. Exclusion orders frequently include the children as protected parties, even in cases where the children may not have witnessed the alleged domestic violence. So these orders then restrict how and when our clients see their children. Usually ACS will only agree to very restrictive visitations such as at an ACS office once or twice a week and closely supervised. This damages the bond between parent and child and deprives our clients and their families of crucial caretaking responsibilities, which again often causes more harm than good. Our clients very frequently take their children to and from school or they act as the child's primary caretaker during the day so that the other parent can work. Exclusion orders prevent them from continu continuing to play this vital role in their children's lives. Exclusion orders create further financial strains uh, for our clients and their families by forcing our clients to make a choice between visiting their children on ACS's schedule versus going to work. Uh, a lot of our clients have lost their jobs or they've been under constant threat by their employer of losing their jobs and because of the ACS involvement. Again, this puts further strain on the family functioning. <coughs> In order to modify exclusion orders issued by the court, ACS follows a very formulaic procedure. In almost all cases involving intimate partner violence, our clients are provided with a one-size-fits-all service plan, and they're told that they must engage in batter's accountability courses or anger management courses. And this is also a common theme with our clients in the DDS's criminal practice. There is rarely, if ever, any formal assessment done by ACS to determine whether batterers of accountability classes or anger management are in fact warranted. And there's certainly no case-by-case -case analysis to tailor a service plan, plan for each family based on the unique facts and circumstances of, of their family. The batterers accountability classes uh, that our clients go to by and large subscribe to a model which focuses on accountability in uh, a punitive fashion. So these courses typically charge participants anywhere from $20 to $35 per session and sometimes require 15 to 20 sessions. So for our clients who are almost all living, all low income or living in poverty, these classes turn into an insurmountable barrier which keeps them from, from reunifying with their family. 
In addition to the financial strain created by services, there is also a major issue with our clients' access to services. In most cases, our clients are willing and absolutely available to participate in services because they really want to reunify with their families. Um, and they also want to expand the limited contact that they have with their children because of these cases. However, because of the limited and costly service options, our clients are not receiving the services that the court expects them to complete, and this prolongs the separation between them and their families. Um, we find that one of the most glaring deficiencies that these service plans create is that the plans don't incorporate the family in any meaningful way, and they don't seem to focus on repairing relationships or creating an environment of effective co-parenting. Uh, even where the family wants to reunify. So this paradigm really needs to change. Uh, there needs to be a more flexible model for treating alleged domestic violence, wherein domestic violence is not so narrowly defined, uh, where a family's unique and fact-specific situation is assessed by trained professionals to determine the right type of service plan for our clients and to meaningfully assess whether a family's separation is even warranted. We need to change the system that treats a one-time incident of domestic violence uh, the same as relationships that endured years mm. worth of power and control dynamics. Part of the assessment must consider the harm being done to the family when the family is separated. How are the children being harmed? How is the survivor being harmed? And how is the perpetrator of the alleged domestic violence being harmed? There needs to be a wider variety of services available to our clients that are not only tailored to the facts and circumstances of the domestic violence, but are culturally competent, language appropriate, and which assess and understand our clients' traumas and histories. Services should not only be quote-unquote batterer-centric, but should be focused on how to include the family unit at every stage of treatment. This is whether the family seeks to reunify as a whole with the parents living together and in a romantic relationship, or whether parents remain separated and the, relation be the relationship between parent and child is fostered through co-parenting. So the ultimate goal for our clients is to ensure that there are service options for the alleged batterers which recognize that they are parents and they have vital caretaking roles for their children and their families. The service model should recognize the importance of the bond that parents have with their children and how children can be a strong motivator in changing patterns of intimate partner violence. Thank you. Mm. Thank you, Juliana. Um, there are so many pieces that you raised that were so crucial. Um, one of the aspects, um, one of the recommendations we came out with as a team um, through this seating generations process was to have an individualized assessment, um, which doesn't happen. And absolutely, that's so crucial and for all the reasons that you spoke of, um, but also because it can prevent some of these other kinds of harms that are happening. Um, and particularly, it's been raised a couple of times in terms of language access. Um, it doesn't really benefit somebody who speaks Korean to go to an English-only <laughs> class. Um, so there's all sorts of barriers um, that are really ne needing to be addressed, as many as of you know. Um, and in terms of thinking about um, again, just some of the issues that have come up, um, who, when I was doing this research, what was really incredible is that many survivors said, um, you know, if we were wealthier, we would just go to a therapist. Um, and in some ways, that's true. Um, so folks that are put into these positions are often folks without resources for other kinds of interventions. 
Um, and I think it was really important, Juliana, what you underscored too, that part of that assessment is to recognize how ongoing and serious the violence is because again, everybody is committed to safety and that is crucial. Um, and so, again, being able to have that kind of flexibility to understand what kind of interventions would actually create a stronger structure um, is part of the work that we haven't been doing because it's been so cookie cutter. So with that, I'm really excited to pass it on to B to speak to some of the ways in which um, New York City is beginning to create more flexible models. Um, we'll get to hear from Albury afterwards in terms of a particular program um, that's doing this work already, but B is gonna speak to some of the innovations at the city level. Thanks, Porvi. Um, thanks for, for having me to have this conversation. I wanna thank Lauren and Liberty and, and other folks. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about this conversation because I think there's, um, I, I know a lot of people in here and, and many of us have been doing this work for a mm. long time. And, you know, I think, you know, so I think about a couple of things. You know, one is kind of the, the, the thing that those of us that are working with survivors and have worked with survivors of domestic violence or, peop or, or survivors themselves hold is that whole issue of safety and accountability mm. and how important that is and how do we not let go of that as we start to think about ways of doing things in a different way? Um, and so, so, you know, I, I think starting to think about things in a different way is, is, takes a lot of conversation and we've had a lot and a lot of working together to figure out what exactly that means and what that could look like. Um, as I was kind of listening to other people, I was thinking about the, you know, my uh, first work in the, in the DV field um, mm -hmm. was working at the Anti-Violence Project. And mm -hmm. so I was working with um, LGBT folks around DV issues, and this was at the same time that VAWA was passing, and coming to these meetings and talking about, you know, what I need to, as, as I've got women who are abusive to other women mm -hmm. and men who are abusive to other men, and trans folks who are, are being abused in their relationships mm -hmm. and was really told that there wasn't really a place for that work and that really wasn't a place because we were really trying to pass the Violence Against Women Act and how important that work was. And it is, you know, so it's like, and how, and so I think the question becomes like, how do all of these truths live mm -hmm. together? Um, because I think for many people working in this field for a long time, it's really hard to have this conversation. And, and I think we have to figure out a way to have it in a way that feels like we can have the truth that we all have and we all have our different truths about how, how, um, how much we think things can change or what needs to happen in our relationships or the relationships of people we serve and have these dialogues in a respectful way. And so this is why something like this is so, so critical. And it's critical now because, you know, we look at since VAWA passed in 1994, so we've seen the incidence of domestic violence in the U.S. go down by 60%. We've seen homicides of men go down by two-thirds, homicides of women go down by a third. But when you look at the last 10 to 15 years, all across the country, those numbers really haven't gone down. 
So, so, what we, so the way I think about it is what we started to do was really critical and remains really critical. You know, having, having um, legal remedies, having shelters, having um, protection orders, having all of those things are really critical, but it's not enough. We need to do more. Um, you know, we look at the stats in New York City around domestic violence homicides. 70% of DV homicides have not had any criminal justice system involvement, no court involvement, no reports to law enforcement, 70% of homicides in this city. So that means that those of us that do this work, we're missing a whole hell of a lot of people mm. because they're suffering at home, they're suffering in their communities, and they're not reaching out to us for help. So I think we need to all think about how none of us is real, we don't all have the whole answer. Um, you know, people are not going through the criminal justice system. Many people are not. And the ones that are, we need to make sure that the system works really, really well and, and, and is being effective. Um, but we also need to provide services for people who aren't coming forward. And so, um, so I think, I, I just say that because I think we need to really think through what, what, what else we need to do, because what we have now is not enough. Mm. Um, so what we're doing in the city, so we had, um, so I think we, we're, you know, we're at an exploratory place. We've got a lot of things going on. We had a, we had a conference here uh, in March of last year around looking at restore, using restorative approaches to address domestic violence. Um, I was at the Office on Violence Against Women in DC before this. We partnered with CCI mm -hmm. to look from a national perspective about how we can start to use restorative approaches. Um, and, and these are all things we need to think about and then figure out really carefully how we implement. So I'm gonna just talk about, mention a couple of, of programs that we're starting and every one of them has a robust evaluation part of it, as part of it, and they're all pilots. They're small programs to try to figure out what can we start to think about doing differently and how do we measure that. Um, so one of the things that's happening is, is um, we're similar to what, what Danny's doing, um, we're also looking at the, there's a one, you know, the city doesn't invest in offender programs for DV at all. We have one $700,000 contract for all DV offenders for the entire city of New York, and it's been the same amount for a long time, and um, it's not enough. But we're looking at reorganizing that program uh, in a way, and we're working with, with Center for Court Innovation on that and working with some experts from around the country to think about how do we keep issues around safety and accountability primary, but also thinking about what can we do around behavior change? Mm -hmm. um, what can we do around um, trying to help men who most often grow up with having one emotion, which is anger, that's acceptable, and how do we start to change, how do we change that um, to provide some skills around expressing feelings um, mm. and, and, and other feelings other than anger and, and looking at some of the, the um, other underlying issues. So, mm. so, um, so that, that is, that's happening. Um, we're kind of in the middle of a, of a procurement process for four new programs that, the, that, that um, Hannah mentioned called Interrupting Violence uh, at Home that the First Lady um, uh, has been championing. Um, so one of them is, is called Respect First and it's for youth who are both inside and outside the criminal justice system to look at how can we provide 
um, programs for, for uh, youth involved in family and, and dating violence um, and provide services for, for, those, for those folks uh, in, in, in a way that uses restorative practices and other kinds of practices. Um, w another one is respect and responsibility, uh, which is for, and other folks mentioned this, for, for people who are, for domestic violence, uh, folks who cause harm in, in issues of domestic violence um, that aren't criminal justice involved. So, you know, and those could be referred by the community. So they'll be in 14 different communities around the, around the city. Um, and so that would be a referral source for the law enforcement officer who's not going to make an arrest because they go to this program over here. Or the clergy member who, you know, is, is identifying domestic violence or for somebody to refer their partner to. Um, the third one is a, is, is, is a blueprint around restorative practices, thinking about where we might be able to use restorative practices uh, in addressing domestic violence in the city, both with, with people who cause harm and with survivors. Um, and then another one is a, a project that we're doing with the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice and their Office to Prevent Gun Violence is incorporating domestic violence in those cure violence programs. So those are programs in communities where there's high levels of gun and gang violence and what, what those programs have been seeing is that, that within this gang violence that some of that gang violence is even motivated by domestic violence, that somebody's got a beef with somebody because that's their ex-girlfriend and that there's a real link between gang activity and domestic violence. And we know that oftentimes people who cause harm have been harmed when they were kids. So, 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 we're, so we're starting, that program is starting. So um, and we're super excited about all of this new stuff and we really want to keep having community conversation so people learn about, so everybody learns about what we're doing to contribute to what these programs look like. Um, so that we can evaluate them and see if they're if they're effective and you know replicate the ones that are that are doing well and um, stop the ones that aren't. So um, so I'm I'm just really excited to be here and excited the conversation and I will shut up so we can have questions and comments. Thank you, V. So I'm really excited because uh, one of the programs that's been operating. Um, at a more family level is the family wellness program and um, I had the opportunity to again sit in on one of the sessions um, and this is a way again where folks who are involved in um, the administration for children's services and fathers who are mandated we can hear more about what Juliana was saying in terms of children as a motivating factor um, and I think for me personally, the first session that I went to, and it was such a gift to see Albury facilitate, um, co-facilitate that session, um, was the distinction between when it was all men, all black and brown men, um, came into the room and just the distinction in their bodies of like, I don't want to be here, I'm surly, this is sh another way the system has gotten me down. and after those two hours of conversation, um, they left the room already with a sense of like, oh, masculinity has done something in my life. Mm -hmm. And so um, I wanna have already give a chance for what that transformation looks like and some of the um, strategy behind the Family Wellness Program. Yeah, awesome. Well, good evening, everybody. I'm sorry for being late. Um, I can actually explain why. And it's a piece with what B was just saying, which we need, uh, 
to fund these services more because currently I was with a family uh, before coming over here and, uh, and we engage in one of our services which are therapeutic visitation services. So, um, which speaks to the needs of these programs because I guess if we were more well-funded, I could have just passed it on to someone else. <laughs> and then I could have made my way over here and then I'm not being pulled in 20 million directions because once I'm done from one session, another father needs something and I'm there. All right, so. Um, so the family wellness program, I think we're about how, uh, 15 years old now? Uh, I'm looking over at my director, just making sure I'm okay. All right. Um, I've only been here for the last 18 years. Oh, I was five, three years off. Okay, I've, I've been working for family wellness for five years uh, now at this point, mostly focused on working with the fathers who come to our program. And so we are one of the, we are, the only program maybe in the city that works with, mm -hmm. I think all members of the family yep. uh, when it comes to domestic violence and child welfare involved families in particular. Uh, and so I guess I can speak to, um, to kind of move things along to the work that I guess I do with the fathers because uh, I have not worked with the survivors as much in our program so I will not touch on that uh, area of service since I'm not well versed in it. So uh, we have three components to our program in which we work with fathers. Uh, we have our 26-week group, which is our abusive partner intervention group. Um, it's our interactive psychoeducational group, which is based off of um, traditional batter's intervention program. So we teach a lot of this, uh, we teach to a lot of the material that you can find in other VIP spaces in the city as well. Now, I think what makes us a bit unique in, is that one, our population, we work exclusively again with fathers. Um, and so there's an opportunity there to talk uh, about the trauma that's impacting the children as a result of the violence. And so it's a trauma-informed program in that we're also uh, discussing in these groups uh, men's own trauma history. Um, we invite it. Uh, we invite them to also learn and maybe raise their awareness and gain some insight into maybe how their own trauma is impacting their choices, their behaviors, their thought process. Uh, and so while it's very intense, we also give ourselves some time uh, to work with these men also outside of the group. So not only do we make ourselves available to the men only in groups, but I'm also open for individual sessions afterwards uh, on call as well if they have any sort of uh, you know um, issue or something that arises throughout the, their, their participation. Um, and so that's one component which I'll go back to. We also have our uh, Caring Dads Initiative, um, which is a separate program which is more involved um, and dives deeper into children's developmental needs um, as well as a result of dealing with uh, uh, living in a home where there is domestic violence. So it's a much, I, I like to think of Caring Dads as the second step to our 26-week group because um, typically our 26-week group is for the men themselves. There's a lot of exploration that is done. They learn a lot more about their own histories because um, we talk about socialization, male socialization, uh, uh, gender dynamics, power dynamics, there's a whole range of topics we cover. So when it comes to caring dads, we focus more on their parenting choices within this environment of domestic violence. Um, and so uh, that's also a much shorter program. It's 23 weeks long as opposed to 26 weeks. Three weeks, but I mean, three weeks can make a difference <laughs> in some people's lives. Um, I mean, you talk to these men and they'll tell you three weeks is a big difference, <laughs> you know? Um, so, uh, and then, of course, we offer individual services as well for those who may be experiencing, maybe uh, if they're dealing with a particular, uh, maybe mental health disorder or substance abuse issue, and which would maybe create a, a barrier or challenge for them to really fully participate and engage in a group, in a large group. So we offer them also more individualized services to tackle these issues. 
Um, and then we have our therapeutic visitation services, which are for non-custodial fathers who are the person uh, who've caused harm in the relationship, so the abusive partner, um, and who are seeking to uh, repair and uh, return into their children's lives, which may have been remo removed as a result of engaging in these acts and then the system being involved. And so um, through therapeutic visitation services, there are, uh, it was modeled after CPP, South Child Parent Psychotherapy, um, with, um, again, rooted in accountability work. So it's getting parents, the fathers in particular, uh, to learn more deeply into how their behavior have impacted their children. Like what are some of the trauma symptoms that may be coming up in the room? What are some of the ways your child may be reacting to you and why? And can you respond in a child appropriate way that is more healing of the trauma versus what they might do outside of this space, which is maybe yell at them, try to correct them in the way that they know. And so it's a learning opportunity. And so the therapeutic visitation service is also an advanced service. It's not something that we offer to someone coming in new. Um, typically it's a, it's a service we offer for men who we deem ready. And by ready is typically someone who's already gone through uh, VIP or preferably our program um, and who have built the relationship and the trust to have us meet with them and their own child. Uh, and actually that's what I was with the family right now <laughs> early on, uh, um, do providing this service, and which is a beautiful session, by the way. Um, and I could get into a little bit into how that, that goes. Um, but um, so these three services, we have caring dads, we have therapy visitation, and then we have our traditional a uh, API group um, for these men. And so we've been operating uh, these groups for, I think, um, about over, over 10 years now in this way. And so currently, I am the facilitator, um, but we also, I do have a colleague who co-facilitates with me in these groups, so I'm not alone. Um, I don't do this work alone. I can't imagine doing it alone anyway. It requires, it would require a lot for me, a lot of patience. Um, and so a lot of what was mentioned in this panel before we address in our service, that's also why I'm not kind of going through the whole spiel again, because I think everyone already named in terms of what we need to do and how we need to approach this particular population, which uh, I echo and also I try to bring into my work. Uh, again, one of the things I can say that I can consistently hear, and as a matter of fact, I did a, an assessment today uh, for someone who's seeking uh, to join and be a part of our services, and I asked him, how did it feel after you talked to me and, and share what you just shared? And he's like, which a lot of them tell me, this is the first time I'm telling someone this. I was afraid I was going to be judged because I am every step uh, of the way up until I got here. And he just looked so relieved that someone didn't point the finger and say, well, this is wrong, you have to do this, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't, this is how you're gonna do it, go, right? It was more like, okay, talk to me, now that you're here for the first time, let me hear your side of the story, which is usually my approach before I come down hard, because I do come down hard, let me tell you. Because <laughs> um, I do let them know that this will be challenging, right? I understand, I hear you, we will not treat you like monsters in here, we will not label you, judgment-free zone, and I will call you out on behavior that I do find damaging to the family and to yourself. Really, so I let them know from the beginning what they can expect from us and what they can expect from me. And so oftentimes what I hear is towards the end, a lot of these fathers come in kicking and screaming, and towards the end, one of the things that we're always hearing, because one of the, as uh, I think all has mentioned before, mm -hmm. we're still seeking a way to evaluate programs and make sure we're being uh, efficient in our work and creating some change. And so we have our exit interviews, which we conduct, and so we compile uh, we've compiled this data over the last five years I've been there where we 
uh, have this extensive interview with each of the participants of our program towards the end around what were their experiences like. And we asked questions like, what was most effective for you at least? And what did you find most helpful? Uh, what kept you coming back? And a lot of the times I tell you, I kid you not, the number one, I guess, top answer would be that you challenged us. You not let us get away with our BS and you understood us. So a lot of times we think that men are scary. Uh, father, these particular fathers, these particular population are scary. We, they're unapproachable. Uh, they don't want anyone challenging them. And so it's interesting to see that then when they find that kind of support, when they're in a group, in a space that they don't feel judged, that the challenging becomes a little bit easier and we can get to a place where maybe we can start to create some change, mm -hmm. right? So I think that's something important that I want to mention for everyone here in the audience to understand because I'm not sure what your experience has been with this population, but from what they tell me, it seems like people are really apprehensive about approaching them or even talking with them extensively about what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so just know that don't be afraid either because <laughs> we're all in this together. So um, in order to start create, creating change, it's going to take a larger movement from us and everyone here in this room. Mm. And can we get another round for the double shift that Al is pulling? Um, and I just want to acknowledge um, that many of us are pulling double shifts for the folks that we represent or the folks that we care for, um, the communities that we serve. Um, so thank you all for the work that you do for the health of our communities. Um, I just wanted to kind of summarize a couple of things and then um, get your questions ready. We definitely want to have time for questions. So um, I think Al, one of the things that I wanted to highlight in terms of your program is that your co-facilitator um, is a cisgender woman. Um, yes. And so there, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you identify as a cisgender yeah, 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 man. Yes, yes. Thank you. And so there's something in terms of just that relationship of co-facilitation um, that's really crucial about, again, um, not like giving a theory of gender relationship, but actual practice of respect in the environment. And so I think that modeling was really effective in what I witnessed. Um, and also that both you and Cheryl, when I witnessed that particular session, are from the community. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, we've been told. I've been told that it's... Uh, there was a couple of sessions uh, Cheryl missed, just she couldn't make it, and the men, I mean the fathers in the room, they, they say I miss her presence. It was, they told me it was important to see us together. So we, I've heard that mm -hmm. feedback that it was also important for them to see us working together, and they've appreciated watching that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and then B had mentioned, and I just want to kind of lift up to the need for, again, programs that are not heteronormative and that are not designed only for um, heterosexual relationships. And, um, you know, in many of the interviews I had done, and especially the Committee for Children, um, Michael, when you had talked to me, you had talked about how there's no individual in these contexts, right? It's a relationship violence issue, and there are children often involved as well. And I also just want to lift up, um, you know, particularly deaf survivors that I spoke to who might live in um, a deaf community or also um, folks who are experiencing elder abuse um, often do not want their kids to be removed from their home or you know if you're living in a deaf facility you're not necessarily going to have other access so again re-envisioning our programs for actual folks in certain contexts is really important 
Um, and within that, um, one of the new programs, too, that's being developed that we don't have a representative for that I want to make sure you know about that's on the horizon, haha, is uh, Safe Horizons Whole Family Work. Um, so that is going to also happen in terms of really thinking about how can we, again, approach a whole family context. Um, so again, another pilot, um, and that will be in development. Um, and then one last thing, um, and I would love to hear your questions, which is that um, the 70% statistic in terms of DV homicides, um, and from what I remember is that, you know, some of those folks might have gone to HRA mm -hmm. or other agencies, but never, again, a criminal legal response. So um, I think from, again, going back to survivor-centered perspectives and really seeing a survivor not only as an individual but the whole family context, we need other agencies, other approaches, so that we can again create healthier communities. So I'll end with that and open the floor up to questions. Yeah. One here and then you. Any survivors here? Okay. Oh. Uh, my name is Terry. I'm a survivor. Oh my God. And I just have to give myself a round of applause for mm -hmm. surviving. <laughs>
it's, you can't co-parent. And, and the New York State um, Court Handbook even says that co-parenting is inappropriate, that it's parallel parenting. So we're, we're, we're rehashing these terms that are actually not part of best practices, and it's very disturbing to me. So mm -hmm. I just want to say that I'm here to represent Oh, and then one more thing about this, the Families Focus Program. I saw the job description that Safe Horizon is, is um, putting out for Family Pro Focus Program, which is going to be sur serving both uh, all survivor, family, children, um, and abuser. And one of the job description um, um, requirements was you have to have anti-racist, anti-oppression um, mindset but there's nothing about anti-sexism. And so I am very disturbed by this, that we're elevating race over gender, and nobody's talking about systemic um, sexism, nobody's talking about gender pay gap, nobody's talking about affordable health care, and all of the things, and all underlying all of this is the myth that we are actually doing what we, are, what we can do already for survivors, which is not the case, because we're not providing holistic services to help survivors leave a relationship. And one final thing, the commentary, the two comments from the survivors in the beginning about them wanting to change their abuser, and I'm sorry that I'm using these very harsh terms, but I, I need to convey the urgency of how I feel. <coughs> to me, though, the analogy is is like, like listening to getting feedback from house slaves. If you're trying to abolish slavery, um, house slaves trying to talk about making the plantation owner or a slave owner treat them better is not the answer. We're trying to abolish sexism. And so having commentary about women who want to make their abuser change isn't really centering our services around empowering the survivor and decolonizing their mind around their own internalized misogyny. Thank you. Thank you for speaking your truth. Good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Haki Baruch. I work for the Shelter Program. I've been doing this uh, domestic violence program. I got many jobs. Domestic violence program for men. I'm also an addiction specialist. Um, I've been doing this 11 years. I commend you for the work you're doing too, brother. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm really appalled and offended, with, offended by a few things. One thing is to say that uh, much of the violence in black communities is, has some connection to domestic violence is insane. I worked from here all the way up Chapel Park all the way to Middletown. I deal with a lot of wealthy families um, that domestic violence going on, and their kids are not running around shooting people and having gang violence. So the correlation of saying that uh, people uh, somewhere in inner city are in gangs and shooting is because they have domestic violence in their family. Mm -hmm. It's horrible to say that. Um, through the uh, DA, uh, my problem is when you say trauma, that we want to treat the perpetrator. I'm a man, and I definitely want a black man. And I'm happy and proud to be a black man. And to see many of my brothers being locked up for years for, for crimes hurts me. I don't want to see them in jail. But to say that perpetrators, we want to, we want to treat perpetrators, which extends from sexism. And all this isn't operating the same, whether it's classism, sexism, heterosexism, they all operate the same. So my question is, if we want to approach sexism, a male accusing a woman by treating the perpetrator through his trauma, 
And I'd like to know what trauma you're talking about exactly. What do we do to someone that uh, blow up a synagogue? What do we do to someone that do hate crime or attacks on the LGBT community? Is that his way out too to say, hey, trauma? Is that what we're going to do? We're going to have trauma for address uh, 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 that issue too? It's scary. This is a scary soap, what we're doing right now. And as a man, as a man, I'm saying this for women, this is scary if we're going to start addressing men, perpetrators, and saying they've been trauma. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, all men been through trauma? We have. And most of the trauma for black men comes through the culture. So we want to deal with this. That's still where the problem lies. And for women, mm-hmm. it's the culture. We got a cultural issue here. So awesome. Like the trauma that I, I suffer from is the culture. Racism. That's my trauma daily. I'm hit with racism. That's the culture. That's the, the trauma I suffer from. And for women, it's sexism. It's common, constantly being objecti- objectified, looking at objects. Stop. This is a cultural issue. This is not trauma. You know, we can always say, you know, everybody got trauma. That's why he beats a woman. That's scary. And I think we can look into that. And so I think. Men, men, men can find ways. I work in a program. They can find ways to make 10 to $20 come to a program. They buy cigarettes, they party, they drink. You can't be caught up in being financially responsible. Women always take care of men. In this case, if they perpetrate a crime, it's not our job to take care of them. Consequences. That's the consequences. So I think Q can thank you for your comment. Um, I'm just going to quickly pass it over to Q and then Tanya as well. Um, And I think the beauty of being able to address sexism and racism simultaneously. Right, right. Uh, Thank you both for uh, for your comments and uh, you know questions because that's important. That's how we count. Yeah. We kind of hear what sure. thinking and the concerns and their triggers and um, all of that is important. Uh, just, just firstly, I think, you know, in the 10 minutes that we, we've had to kind of talk about the work that we've been doing, um, we weren't able to kind of get uh, in depth in terms of the, uh, the foundation of where we're working. I think I can speak for many of us on this panel that we work on that intersection of racism and sexism. Uh, me, particularly me as a, a man of color, Work uh, living in New York City, my experiences around racism have been uh, my my entry point into doing this work. I worked around I worked with around political prisoners. I worked around um, you know racism within the city university system, um, around police brutality. All of these intersections that have driven me when I've shifted from doing work around anti-racism and. Um, into looking at sexism, right? It's a, it's a structure that's very similar, right? And there's, a, there's an intersection between that. Uh, black women, in particular, experience racism equally as men do, right? We get a lot of the attention and the, the response um, in terms of like community organizing, what have you. So it's very, uh, in terms of how men and women respond to issues when, when women or women of color, in particular, are struggling with uh, structural or systemic violence or violence against men, it's very conditional around how men get involved in that. And what I've found is that women have been unconditional around no matter what type of power system that is uh, exerting power over someone who's powerless. So well, I think all of our work, and particularly our work in Connect, and I can speak for Family Wellness and many other organizations here, is definitely at that intersection of race, class, and gender. Where, in particularly when we're looking at systems where, um, depending on where you fall, 
in that system of power, you, you have less representation in the system, right? Women are um, experienced uh, courts and systems, and particularly around violence against women and girls in a particular type of way, which leads many women of color not to want to experience that, or expose themselves to that, or their children to that, and also self-sacrificing, right? My mom raised two single, two, two boys by herself in New York City. I can, you know, I can tell you the experience of uh, witnessing a survivor of violence and what she had to experience and choices she had to make around that. Mm -hmm. So we're not coming from a perspective that's foreign or not informed by survivors. Mm -hmm. Every single, everything I do in the work at Connect and Family, family Wellness um, and um, uh, the Mayor's Office of Gender-Based Violence. <laughs> 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 and I'm not, I'm not trying to be funny, but like um, and many of the, the, the women on this I won't speak for this panel, but in this field that are, are leading many of these organizations are survivors and professionals. A lot of times we don't really tap into that part of their lives, mm -hmm. experiences, but I can tell you that most of the work around men in New York City that is really based on, and I'm glad you mentioned, there's a difference between uh, anger management and domestic violence gotcha. intervention programs, because one deals with the uh, anger management, deals with splitting the accountability. You know, this this two this uh, this equal playing field when in domestic violence is a power dynamic and it's not equal. There's someone that is exerting and using anger to gain or maintain power control in that relationship. So that is real. We have to be able to really um, change the language that we use because sometimes they'll use anger management to describe domestic violence or violence intervention program because that's an easier conversation with a man who's been abusive in a relationship. And judges need to be educated around that, that there's a difference. And I'm glad you mentioned that. So that's very, very important. And then in the other piece around um, trauma, you know, the trauma that we're talking about is yes, um, and, you know, and it's not about the hierarchy of trauma so much, mm -hmm. men versus women, black versus white, et cetera. The fact is that we're working with communities that have a culture of trauma and vicarious trauma. Mm. We, have a, we have working in communities where we have, we're experiencing cultures of violence. A batteries program can hopefully transfer and change the mindset of an individual, but the work is no single batteries program or survivors group or common group can transform the culture of violence that we're experiencing. That's porn culture, that's rape culture, and then also in terms of communities here, right here in New York City, but not just experiencing the, the, the trauma from related issues around violence, and gun and gang violence is a related issue. Many of the young people I work with in cure violence, outside of cure violence, have experienced violence in their home, and as a result of not getting what they need at home, they're making misinformed and poor decisions in the community, which tends to relate to uh, gun and gang violence. Mm -hmm. and for young women who are experiencing those same things in the mm -hmm. home, go into the community, and sometimes the initiation into these cliques, and without judgment with gangs, because they're serving a purpose that's not being met at home, have mm -hmm. to experience sexual violence mm -hmm. to be involved in part of that safety around uh, that protection, quote unquote protection that you get from, gun, you know, from gangs and cliques and communities. So it's important, and again, not all men are abusive, not all women are survivors, but the potential of it exists because we live in a, in a, a dynamic mm. with, with sexist 
communities and not, not, not even just in New York City, but globally. Yeah. I do this work all over the world and fundamentally, it's about patriarchy, misogyny, sexism, the location, the resources available, because that's what we're talking about. In the most resource city in the world, we're talking about resources to make sure that survivors of violence are safe. Mm -hmm. and, and as a strategy, sorry, last thing, as a strategy, we need to think about the correct language. Mm -hmm. You are correct, yeah. right? Saying harm is not, the intention is not to minimize anything, mm -hmm. right? But we need to f figure out what is our entry point into having um, mm -hmm. uh, conversations with men to uh, hold them accountable, transform their behavior and thinking and their attitudes towards women and men, mm. despite the sexual orientation or identity. That's the mm. work that we need to kind of do. Mm. And I know this is not complete. We're not answering all your questions and concerns. And I hear you. Trust me. Everything mm. that you say and do, well, that will inform our work moving forward. Mm. And we're open to that, but not perfect. Domestic violence services are not perfect, particularly services that are related to abusive partners mm. or harm doers or perpetrators. Because there's a lot of legal jargon. Like when we're out in the communities, we're not talking about toxic masculinity. Mm. We're not talking about patriarchal misogyny. We have to tell the story to get to the point around people mm. feeling powerless, mm. hopeless, and what are the causes and root causes mm. of that. And that root cause to sexism is definitely related to the root causes of uh, racism and classism and all the other isms that are uh, connected. Thanks. Thank you, Q. Tan, did you? Yeah. Just briefly, I completely agree with everything that Q said, <laughs> and I um, really thank both comments because I think they're important comments and important perspectives. I will say, as a prosecutor, obviously, my primary role is to protect victims and hold. <clears throat> batterers accountable. But in the context, and I will say this just as a side note, as a supervisor of DV cases, all of my DV assistants know that anger management is never an appropriate disposition for anything involving domestic violence cases, and that's a rule, and no one does. No one's supposed to do it within my office, and if they do, they get in trouble, so that's number one. But number two, with regards to batterer intervention programs, you know, the, we my office, we have a, a robust witness aid services unit. There's a lot of resources that we provide to our victims because our main priority and my main priority as a supervisor is that it's not the case, it's the safety of the victim. And if that means the safety of the victim is moving that victim out of state and she's away and we lose that case, that's a win for me because that victim's safe and in a better space for her and for her family. So that was our priority and that's what we dictate within my office. Um, and when it comes to working with how do you how do you stop the recidivism? How do you stop the violence that's going on? I think as a prosecutor you have to look outside just the prosecution piece, but you have to also look at the batterers piece and how can you change behavior? How can you have a step in regards to helping that? And a lot of what Pew said, I don't repeat it, there is some there is racism, there is sexism, but there is trauma as well that goes on. And it's the trauma of watching violence within your neighborhood as well that kids and adults are dealing with. And if we want to change behavior, you also want to confront that trauma as well. And let that individual who wants to confront that trauma and get those services have the ability to do so. 
So that's why we want to make sure that these are services that are out there that were not available and not something that they can connect to and get, but they should get because that's how you change and become more, have a more transformative system. So that's why you need to have not just one option, but both options out there as well. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so we have three hands, and what I'd like to do for the sake of expedience is please ask your question, and all three questions, and then we'll answer them simultaneously to honor our, our time here. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. That was definitely an arena in terms of, again, um, folks who don't get access to representation for divorce um, or other things. So thank you. That was absolutely a need. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I represent, my name is Shanae. I represent women who have So there's one hand here, and then last. Just struggling against answering that question. Assistance of the question, and the whole criminal justice system is racist. Not just speak loud. That's fine. Okay, let me get to my actual question. Um, 
you use the word transformative a lot. Mm. And I think transformative is great for you to do. The systems have to be transformed. But we cannot promise that we're going to transform individual people mm -hmm. who are committing crimes. Mm -hmm. We can't promise that. Mm -hmm. And we have to have other ways to say, you know, I just think it's personal change is really hard. I'm failing. I still smoke. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's rough. And I think going through a 26-week program or even your segmental program, that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. I am who I am. And I've been in a long time, and there are all kinds of social pressures reinforcing that. Well, not saying, but the standards. Um, so I'm concerned. I'm concerned about the evaluation as researcher and evaluator. I did a study under me um, comparing mm -hmm. a better a fatherhood curriculum with a mm -hmm. standard. <coughs> um, the standard battle program curriculum that we used to take. Um, and at the end, I evaluated. And we had random assignments. And then we're all court mandated. They got to one or the other. It wasn't their choice. And what we found was the instructors loved the, the fatherhood. The men were so engaged. They said they learned so much. You know what? Neither group changed mm -hmm. in significant numbers. So I'm really concerned about the kind of evaluation mm -hmm. you do. You're just asking people questions about how do you feel and what do you value and blah, blah, blah. Right. You get marvelous answers. They sound great. Their behavior, we need behavioral measures. We need it long term. So one of the, I'm just going to um, respond to that quickly and then move to another researcher, actually. Um, but um, I know family wellness actually asked the survivor also, because again, you're doing whole family work. So again, there are various pieces of research. Absolutely. I think these are folks who work with survivors. It's complicated. And yeah, no, sure. yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, but I think also there's research of various forms. And I think we also want to acknowledge that so many of these programs, as Al proved to us, are underfunded. And what does it look like in Q's original question for these services not to need to exist? And so the transformative is actually transformative solutions. It's not promising anything, but it is thinking about systems change and larger change across individuals and families. I'm going to pass it over to Trisha. Great. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Um, and so, I guess, thank you for such an amazing um, panel presentation. And the way in which I like to see this work, I'm relatively new to this work, maybe seven years or so. The way in which I like to see this work is that this is, families are millennia old. Mm. Um, our systems enter and exit families. Yeah. How do we affect those families when we decide that it's worthwhile to enter? And I think that's the conversation we're having. Um, and I think what we're doing has made some change, but is it sufficient? And the answer is no. And I'm so excited that the conversation continues. Um, thank you for your comments before, because there are your, your experiences are legitimate. Mm. And the experiences of families who want to stay together are legitimate. And the experiences of families who know that's not the right thing those, those experiences are legitimate. To respond mm -hmm. to your um, uh, question beforehand, what is trauma? Um, trauma is never meant to excuse. Mm -hmm. Understanding someone's trauma may help to explain. Mm -hmm. um, and 
Al and I have had this conversation to the young woman who stood up and talked about when are we going to talk about the real issues. Um, I just completed a study in his program, and I said, you know, I used this with my students. I said, wow, unless only black and brown men um, abuse, then uh, it's statistically impossible that all the men in the program mm -hmm. are black and brown. Statistically mm -hmm. impossible, mm -hmm. unless we are punishing black and brown men for a particular behavior and choosing not to punish others. Mm -hmm. um, so I agree with you. It's statistically impossible, and the city has gotten progressively wealthier and wiser. Our programs should look different, unless we're telling survivors of needs and white survivors, your, your experience does not I think that's a beautiful closing in terms of gratitude and complexity. Um, I think I want to thank all of our panelists. Um, this is a complex and complicated issue, and we're here to open dialogue and to hear. Um, and as Q said, the concerns are legitimate. And so we want to keep pushing, we want to keep innovating, and ultimately we want to exist, we want to exist in a world without violence. Um, where relationships are sacred. So thank you all for coming. If you want to chat with us more, we're here. Um, please continue the conversation, and thank you again for all the work that you do every day. <laughs>